that you sent your son to, to live and to die in, in our place. And Lord, we come today in celebration of that, remembering that, and, and learning more about the implications for the gospel in our everyday life. So Lord, today as we open up your word, I pray that your name will increase and ours will decrease, that you will use your word to do your work today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. The sun is coming through, <laughs> and I'm excited about that. I walked in here, I was like, all right, sun's coming through, it's not like dark and gloomy, that's, that's one excuse out of the way to keep you from falling asleep today, but the others we'll continue to work on uh, as we want to make sure we're engaging in the Word today. But go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. As you do, you might have seen, hopefully you saw on Facebook this week, uh, put out an announcement um, just to co- we're going to be collecting food for KPP Kids Power Pack. Uh, specific items, I think they're listed in uh, your handout, uh, like single serve, like ravioli, pop the cans, uh, single serve, instant oatmeal, macaronis, those type of things that are easy to do. Um, and we're going to just collect those kind of three things specifically. You can uh, bring them if you have them with you today. Great, just kind of put them at the front table. Um, or if you're going to bring them with you next week, we'll have kind of a box that's going to be out there designated towards that as well. And this is just kind of helping with our kids in the area, um, one, while they're out of school right now, but also in the summertime, spring breaks, and all those times when they just don't have meals in their homes. Um, this helps cover those uh, type of needs, and some ministry we want to be a part of there. But now on, on another note, how many of you have ever said, I'll never do that? Like, whatever that is, like, I'll never do that. And then you find out that you actually do. Yeah, yeah. everybody's like hands like going out of any recognition. I was thinking about that kind of concept today or this week as I was studying this text. And I remember, I remember when Leslie and I were celebrating our second anniversary. We were on our way down to Disney World. We were living in Blyville, Arkansas at the time. Uh, this is 2006. And, uh, and so we're, Blyville, Arkansas, <laughs> Even living there was one of those areas where, in my mind, I said, I will never live west of the Mississippi. And God said, we're going to put you in the very next town over, right right here in like the ugliest part of Arkansas that there ever was. Like State Bird was the mosquito, uh, rice fields all around. And he's like, this is where you'll never? Okay, we'll plant you right here. And then we're on our way down to Disney World, um, 2006. This is like right after the hurricanes of 2004 and 2005. And we're caught in this just rainstorm, massive rainstorm. And, and I look over at Leslie, and like I had interned in Florida before and lived down there for a little bit for a summer. And I just looked down and I was like, I promise you, honey, we will never live in Florida. Well, that's January of 2006. By November of 2006, we're living just outside of Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm going to be very careful with this one. Now, the one that I still hold firm to on the I nevers, is I will never be the guy who drives a minivan, all right? Like, like I, I'm holding firm on that one. And so based upon my track record of saying that, I'm like, Leslie, hold up. <laughs> like, we never know what's, what's going to happen. But uh, there's a lot of those I nevers that, that are out there. And today's text is filled with some pretty strong I'll, I'll nevers from the disciples. They're very clear of, I'll, I'll never do this, I'll never do that. And as you can imagine, they do what we all do, and they end up doing what they say that they'll never do. So follow along with me, if you will. We're going to pick up in, in chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, of course, the most important question in all of these these verses that we've just read is who is the naked man in verses 51 and 52? And why is this included in the Bible? As you can tell, that is clearly the most important question before us because, let's face it, it seems like a kind of odd inclusion into the text. We're just talking about Judas being betraying Jesus. We're talking about these events that are taking place. And then we have this insertion uh, in 51 and 52 of a naked young man running away. It's like, what's up with that, right? Well, by all accounts, what we see is most likely this is actually a young Mark. This is Mark, the author of this gospel, witnessing these events firsthand, including them in here, as it's the only gospel that it is found in. But beyond the inclusion here, the fact that he ran away naked, I think the emphasis that is being placed here is it's further emphasizing the reality that no one was left by Jesus' side. Mark is saying, I I was even gone. No one was left by his side. See, what we have in a general summary of these verses is Jesus saying in verse 27, 
you will all fall away. All, including every one of you, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, Jesus being the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. The disciples then are like, no, we won't. We'll never do that. That won't be us. Peter even saying, well, these dudes might, but I'm not going to do that. Peter preferably just kind of throws them under the bus like, <laughs> they might do it, but I'm not going to do that. To which Jesus responds, oh, yeah, Peter, yes, you will. Yes, you will. This very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Again, Peter's like, no way. <laughs> if, I, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Jesus. And all the disciples are saying the same thing. They're echoing Peter's words. <laughs> We're never going to do this. But now fast forward past the betrayal. Fast forward past when Jesus is taken away. And you look at verse 50. Look at verse 50 there in the text. And they all left him and fled. Jesus is left alone. Completely alone. So what we're going to do this morning with this very important text is we're going to look at four reminders that are coming out of this text. There's a lot we could spend time looking at, but I think these are very crucial reminders to each and every one of us in our walk with Christ or maybe lack thereof. And so we want to, to look here, starting with reminder number one. Our best intentions will never be good enough. You can add an addendum to that. Our best intentions will never be good enough to keep us from falling away from Jesus. This never will be. Our best intentions will never be good enough. Just look in the first section here in verse, verses 26 through 31 and how Jesus has told the disciples, hey, you're all going to fall away. Every single one of you, you're going to fall away. And then look how they adamantly responded to the contrary. If, I'm, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But then just a few hours later, what happens? What happens? They all left him and fled. Now rewind back to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further into the garden with him. Then he tells them that he's weary, that he's sorrowful, that he's distressed, and he instructs them to remain and watch while he goes a little further and begins to pray. And when he returns to kind of come back and check on them, what are they doing? They're sleeping. Simon, referring to Peter, are you, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour, like one hour? Then Jesus instructs them to pray. Now notice that he doesn't instruct them to pray for him. He's not instructing them to pray for him in his distress or his sorrow. He's instructing them to pray for themselves. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But then Jesus goes again, away again, and he begins to pray. Returns again, and what are they doing? Sleeping. The events happen again for the third time. He goes back, goes, returns, and what are they doing again? They're sleeping. The disciples have all been like, oh, we'll never betray you, Jesus. It'll never happen. We'll never deny you, Jesus. And then moments later, Jesus says, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And immediately, and check these words here, while he was still speaking, Judas came. And Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. And then by verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Every last one of them. They all left him and fled. Has that ever happened to you? At first glance, you're thinking, well, I'm not Judas. I'm not one of the disciples. Has that ever happened to you? 
has me. I'm talking about the mindset of I've got this. I've got this. I'm good. I'll never do that. I'm not gonna, I may do something, but I'm not going to do that. Ever happened to you? Sure it has. It's happened to all of us. We think something's impossible, unimaginable, un- until it happens. We may even have the best of intentions. Like, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going. But we learn that the best laid intentions, the best intentions are not enough. We see that before. Let's face it. How many things in our lives do we have the best intentions about? I mean, my, I've got a house full of best intentions. <laughs> I have the best intentions of getting a lot of things done around the house. But best of intentions without action are useless. This specifically applies to guarding ourselves from falling into sin and away from Jesus. The best of intentions can be there, but what are we doing in the midst of this? The best of intentions will not keep us from falling into sin and away from Jesus. That's why, number two, we must watch and pray not to enter into temptation. We must watch and pray not to enter into temptation. Look at verse 38. And look at Jesus' instruction to the disciples after he finds them sleeping. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Remind you, he's not praying for, asking them to pray for him. He's saying, pray for yourselves. Pray, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now remember, he's, he's already told them that they're all going to fall away, every single one of them. And they've all responded how? No way. Not us. And here's the thing. I honestly believe that they believe that. I believe that they believe that they would never fall away from Jesus. They would never deny him. It was inconceivable to them that they would fall away from Jesus. Just as it is inconceivable to you to do whatever that unimaginable thing may may be. No one woke up that day. None of the disciples woke up that day saying, today's the day. Today is the day that I am going to betray Jesus. Today is the day that I am going to deny Jesus. Today is the day that I'm going to run away and walk away from Jesus. Same with us. There's none of us that ever wake up saying, today is the day I'm going to make the biggest mistake of my life. Today is the day that I'm going to destroy my marriage. Today is the day that I'm going to begin the slippery slope of, of, of falling away from Jesus. Today, today is the day. But even when our spirit is willing, even when our desires are in the right place and our intentions are the best that they can possibly be, Jesus reminds us that our flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. That's why he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's, it's kind of the theme of chapter 13 where he says, stay awake, be on guard. Don't be caught off guard. See, the, the reason Peter and the other disciples keep falling asleep here in the garden is because they don't understand how vulnerable they really are to, the, to falling into temptation. They don't understand their vulnerabilities. And the same can easily be said of most Christians today. That's why we must watch and pray that we may not enter into temptation. Notice it's two parts here, too. He says, watch and pray. Let's look at both of those, starting with watch. Stay awake. Be on guard. It's it's a mode of being on defense. 
It's understanding that there is a real threat that is out there. There are real vulnerabilities in our lives that we need to be aware of. But here's the thing, whether it's a student or an adult, if we're sitting here today and we're thinking, hey, I'm all right. I'm good. I'm not that vulnerable to temptation. I've got this. I've kind of got my system working. If that's you this morning, then you're likely the most vulnerable person in the room today. The most vulnerable person in the room. Why? Because your flesh is weak and you don't even realize it. You don't realize how weak your flesh is. You're just like the disciples who are sitting there saying, not me. It's never going to happen to me. And then the day comes when you're looking around and saying, how did this happen to me? How did I get here? I never saw it coming. We have to be watchful. We have to be aware. I mean, there's a reason that we lock our doors at night, right? There's a reason that we set alarms and baby-proof our houses. Because we recognize that there are real vulnerabilities in our homes, in our lives, in our world. And we take proper actions to protect ourselves, to guard ourselves, to be watchful of those potential vulnerabilities. I mean, why do you put a baby gate at the top of the stairs? Because you don't want the baby to fall down the stairs, right? There's, there's real danger that, that is present, that is there. We want to avoid those things. The same is to be true with sinful temptation. Real vulnerabilities await around every corner with sin. It's enticing for a reason. Real vulnerabilities. It's tempting. We have to be on watch. We must be watchful and aware of the threats that exist all around us. And two, we must pray. We must pray. Why must we pray? Because we can't rely on our own strength to overcome the temptation. We just can't. We can, we can set up all the safeguards in the world, have every monitoring device that is out there on our phones, in our life, in our homes, accountability partners, all things that are be good things. But if all we're relying on is our willpower to overcome temptation, then that temptation will eventually overtake us. It will eventually overtake us. And just because we overcome one particular temptation doesn't mean we're going to overcome the next. And just because we think we've got one whooped, and you know those times you're like, man, I kicked that sin's butt. You know, yes, Brian's going to be like, what? He just said butt. But I just kicked that sin right in the tail, and you're like, I conquered it, right? You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't just do the fist bumps and the thumbs up, but you're feeling good about yourself. That's the moment that that sin is going to come in for a sneak attack from another direction. Redisguised and, and reformed in another way. This, this is why when, when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray, he included, Let, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Why? Why would he include, lead us not into temptation? Deliver us from evil. Because we can't do this on our own. Our flesh is weak. But here's the thing, we're not expected to do it on our own. We're not expected to. As Christians, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the helper. The same helper that Christ relied upon and rested in to overcome sin throughout his entire earthly ministry, whether it's in the wilderness or throughout his life. We've been given the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation, to escape from temptation. 
There is no temptation that we'll ever be able to, to, that we're not able to overcome. God has provided a means to overcome, to escape every means of temptation, not by our power, but by his. Again, why Jesus instructs the disciples and us to pray that we may not enter into temptation. And why? Why why the importance of prayer? Why should we be praying in these moments? Why, Why should Peter be praying right here as Jesus has told him that he is going to deny him three times? Why should he be praying here? Because we're far less likely to succumb to temptation while we're praying. We're far less likely to, to, to succumb to temptation while we're communing and fellowshipping with God. It doesn't mean that sinful thoughts can't and won't enter into our minds as we pray. But it is far less likely that we'll be looking at a porn, porn screen and doing things that we should not be doing if we're spending times in prayer. Whatever those sins may be. There's a reason that he's calling us to, to pray. See, our flesh is weak. We need to understand that our flesh is weak. And Satan is looking to steal, kill, and destroy. Therefore, we must watch and pray that we never enter into temptation. And not just in the midst of temptation, but before it even arises. Be on guard. Be prepared before the storm hits. There's a reason all this wind came through and people's sightings and stuff like that. You can't control that. You can do the best that you can when it's coming. But the thing I did control is I made sure everything that was loose in my yard, I strapped down or I put it away. Otherwise, what are you asking for? For your house and your home and everything else to get wrecked. But here's the question. What happens when you fall flat on your face? What happens when you fall flat on your face and you fall right into that temptation? Because it will happen. It has happened. So what do we do? We remind ourselves, number three, that Christ's commitment to us isn't based upon our commitment to Him. Christ's commitment to us is not based upon our commitment to Him. And it's Jesus' prayer here in the garden that reminds us why. See, here in the garden, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Then he goes a little bit further into the garden and he falls on the ground and Jesus himself begins to pray. He's praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. You want to talk about temptation? Jesus is facing temptation head on. Like the likes that we have never seen or will ever experience. He's facing it right here, dead on. And what's he doing in this moment? He's praying. As we see in verse 36, Abba, Father. It's an intimate prayer. The the Jewish people, the disciples hearing this, they would never have prayed with this type of intimacy. He goes, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That that last sentence, remove this cup from me. The last two sentences. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Notice how the will of Jesus is conditioned 100% upon the will of God. Not upon his flesh, but upon the will of God. 
In his flesh, Jesus does not desire to go to the cross. In his flesh, he does not, but he desires to please the Father. He desires above all else to please the Father. The temptation is strong to avoid the cross. Don't do this. All the reasons why flooding in. But his desire to please God, the desire to please the Father, is so much stronger. You know what Jesus does? He always chooses what he desires most. And so do we. We always choose what we desire most. It's either God or sin. It's either the choosing God or choosing the sinful temptation. It's a raging battle that is taking place at every moment of every day all around us. Am I going to obey God or am I going to obey the the sinful passions of my own fleshly heart? What is it going to, to be? God or the pleasures that I want for myself, what is it going to be? We always choose one of the two. We always choose what we desire most. And for Jesus, his desire each and every time was always to choose to please God the Father. Nevertheless, we're told in the gospel accounts, in other accounts, not here in Mark, but the others tell us the distress in these moments were so great that it caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood. To sweat drops of blood. There's no distress or temptation that has ever gripped us like that or ever will. And to help us understand why Jesus would sweat drops of blood, to understand this, we need to understand the significance of the cup. Because the cup that he is referring to here, the cup is where the attention is drawn. That's what Jesus is asking to be removed from him if possible. So what is this cup? We've addressed it in the past, but now we'll address it even in more detail. As Scripture tells us that this cup that Jesus is asking, if possible, to remove from him is the cup of God's wrath that is to be levied out for sin. It is this impending judgment of God against sin that is now staring Jesus square in the eye. He's always known that this day is going to come. He's told his disciples, been trying to prepare his disciples that this day is going to come, but now this day is here. And he's about to receive the infinite wrath of God, not, not for his sin, because he has none, but for ours. See, the horrible and physical suffering that we see kind of laid out at, at the cross, that's not what's causing him to sweat drops of blood. His sorrow and his distress isn't because of some fear of man-made nails or a crown of thorns. It's not a fear of the mocking that is going to come. What it is, it is an understanding of the wrath of God that he is about to experience. And as graphic as, as the movie The Passion of the Christ was in portraying the physical agony of the crucifixion, and by all accounts it was true to form in portraying the physical agony of the cross, What it could not do, what no movie could ever do, what my words can never do, is detail the agony of God's wrath that Jesus experienced. Could not. 
could not detail what it was like to think about everything that was leading up to that cross. And understand, Jesus knew every single detail that was going to lead to that cross. And to know from the very first time in all of eternity that he, the Son of God, would experience the God the Father turning his back on him. A separation once that has never experienced before. See, here in this garden, as he prays, Jesus knows exactly what he's about to face. He knows exactly what he's about to face. He knows exactly what he's about to endure. And he knows exactly who he's about to endure it for. And he still chooses to obey God. His greatest desire is to obey God. As the full weight the full weight of God's holy anger towards sin is to be placed upon Him. The full weight of eternal hell is being pressed upon Him with every single suffocating breath. So what the passion of the Christ gets right is it's a death by suffocation. (gasps) Pulling Himself up And back down with every painful, suffocating breath. But what it does not detail is that what is being pressed down upon him is the full weight of eternal hell that you and I deserve. The cup of God's wrath being poured out until he finished drinking down every single last drop. Satisfying once and for all God's wrath for your sin and for mine leaving not even one drop, not one drop for we who trust in Him as our only hope in life and in death to bear. Not one drop. We trust in Him as our only hope in life and in death. We do not receive even one drop. He drank it all. So when you fall flat on your face, When you fall into temptation, understand that Jesus knew you would fall away. He knew you would fall away, just like he knew with the disciples. But he died for you anyway. His love for the Father, his love for you, his love for me, drove him to the cross, substituting his life for ours. So understand that Christ's commitment to us is not based upon our commitment to him. Christ's commitment to us is based 100% on the shed blood of Christ. And because of that, number four, the promised resurrection is a promised reunion. See, the resurrection is, is, is a victory cry. At the cross, after drinking down every last drop of God's wrath towards sin, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Tossed the cup aside. It was done. But what we see at the resurrection is the I told you so. (laughs) I told you. I told you, death could not hold me. (laughs) This is the guarantee. (laughs) Notice in verse 28, after Jesus was telling the disciples, hey, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to scatter. Look what he says. But after I am raised up, 
I will go before you. You, those who have fallen away, I will go before you to Galilee. Again, he's telling them that death will have no hold on me. It will not have the final say. He's telling them, even though he knows they will screw up, that they will fall away, hey, we're going to meet again. I'm going to make sure of it. We're going to meet again. Church, that's a promise that we have to cling to today. We have to cling to it today because Christ rose from the grave. So will we who are in Christ. Yeah, we're going to screw up. But we're going to continue to trust in the shed blood of Christ and not our works. Not our flesh. See, don't forget the scene of the story. Don't forget where this is taking place. The Garden of Gethsemane. But is the Garden of Gethsemane the only garden in the Bible? No. No, our story, the story of the Bible, it starts in a garden, doesn't it? The Garden of Eden. And in that garden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were called to live a completely obedient and holy life before God. You know what they did? They failed. They failed 100% of the way. They failed. They chose what they desired most and gave in to temptation. Honestly, it was a temptation that they never saw coming. Never saw it coming, but a temptation that, that led to sin nonetheless. It led to an eternal separation from them and and God. A perfect, unbroken fellowship that they experienced, no more. And as children of Adam, which all of us are, we bear the effects. We were born children of wrath, separated from God. We too have given in to temptation. We too have sinned in more ways and more times than we can ever begin to count, right? Right? But in that garden on that day, God made a promise. He made a promise that one day someone would come and crush the head of that nasty snake. And it would destroy and defeat sin and death once and for all. In church, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And in the garden of Gethsemane, temptation does not win. It does not win. But today, for each and every one of us here, We need to understand that we are either in Adam, remaining in our sin and awaiting the judgment that we deserve, or we are in Christ, trusting that he is our only hope in in life and in death. That he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. That he received the judgment that we deserve. See, it only took Adam and Eve one sin to to separate themselves permanently from God. Again, we think about all the sins that we have committed. A reminder that we can never be good enough to earn our favor with God. We can never, our intentions can be great, but we will still sin. We will still fall away. We can never make ourselves right. But Christ can. And he has for everyone who takes shelter under his righteous blood. Will you do that today? Will you continue to do that today? Continue to take shelter under the righteous blood of Christ? Don't beat yourself up, but watch and pray and trust in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, 
we cannot begin to thank you enough for sending your son to live and to die as our substitute. For drinking every drop of the wrath and the judgment that we deserve. But thank you, it seems to be all that we have to offer. And we also thank you that you not only freed us from the consequences of our sin, but you made it possible to overcome temptation. That you give us new hearts and new desires. So Lord, we ask that the desires of our hearts be firmly fixed upon you. That we will continue to grow, to to treasure you, and to treasure pleasing you above all else. Let what we desire more than anything be that of pleasing you and obeying you. Help us to be watchful and prayerful that we be not entering into temptation. And Lord, forgive us of the sins that we have committed and help us to rest in, in the finished work of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to the preaching of God's word through, through song.